I think we're all searching for some method of navigating life through food and movement that is easy, enjoyable, and gives me everything I want. Who's not looking for that? Welcome back to the Hardbed Athletics Inside and Out podcast. I am your host, Derek Batman. Today, I am excited to bring back on one of our fan favorites from season one, Marcus Philly. As a former CrossFit Games athlete and founder of Functional Bodybuilding, Marcus brings a wealth of knowledge and experience to our conversation. Today, he's here to share his insights on finding the delicate balance between pushing the limits in training and minimizing injury risk, defining what functionality really means in the realm of exercise, and the art of making the basics of fitness not just effective, but also deeply attractive. But Marcus's expertise doesn't stop there. He also opens up about his personal journey through different nutrition philosophies, including his experiences with animal-based eating and the nuanced approach he takes towards nutrition with his own children, recognizing the importance of fostering a positive relationship with food and movement from a young age. Marcus discusses strategies for making healthy eating and active living a joyful and integral part of family life. Whether it's creating a low-pressure food environment that respects children's autonomy or finding creative ways to make movement fun, Marcus offers practical advice for parents aiming to set a strong foundation for their kids' physical and mental well-being. Join us as we explore these topics and more, uncovering the keys to a balanced, healthy lifestyle for all ages. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, real quick before we dive into the episode, you probably heard about this podcast directly from someone else or saw it shared on social media. We can only grow, spread our message further, and keep bringing in awesome and amazing guests with your help. If you could take five seconds and hop on whatever podcast platform you're using and leave us a review, it would mean the world to us. On to the show. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a huge shout out to our amazing sponsor, Lucid Branding Solutions. If you're running a service-based business and looking to boost your profitability, you'll want to hear this. Lucid Branding Solutions is your go-to partner for transforming your business's online presence. They specialize in creating visually stunning media that's not just eye-catching, but tells the story of your brand in a compelling way. But that's not all. In today's digital world, having a strategy is key. Lucid Branding doesn't just throw ideas at the wall to see what sticks. They craft tailored digital media strategies that align with your business's goals, ensuring that your brand not only gets noticed, but remembered. And let's talk about leads. We all know how crucial they are. Lucid Branding optimizes lead nurture systems, ensuring that from the first point of contact, your potential customers are engaged, informed, and ready to take action. Plus, in a world driven by data, Lucid Branding Solutions stays ahead of the curve. They provide top-tier data insights, giving you a competitive edge and keeping your business at the forefront of your customers' minds. So if you're ready to take your service-based business to the next level with a branding strategy that's as smart as it is stylish, visit Lucid Branding Solutions today. That's www.lucidbrandingsolutions.com. Trust me, your brand deserves this kind of brilliance. Now let's get back to the show. Marcus Philly, welcome back to the show, my friend. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for uh, the quick tutorial on how to build a very comprehensive backdrop for your podcast studio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and by, by tutorial, he means get a friend to do it. Get a friend and then discourage anybody from trying to do it because it's really difficult. Precisely. <laughs> I just but. see so many books on your shelf that I've either read or I know about and you, you have... You have a lot of the classics up there. Yeah, so I'll be honest. I think I see that influence book down there, the yellow and blue yeah. uh, on the bottom shelf. See, I listen to all my bo books, so I don't actually have hardback books. And once, like during COVID, I was like, I was going through so many books on audio and I was like, God, I want to have a bookshelf, you know, <laughs> I want to at least have this, like, uh, create the illusion that I'm reading hardback books. So I went and I bought a bunch of books that I had read on like a used bookseller site. I don't, I don't even know what it was thinking I was going to make a bookshelf, never got around to it. And they all arrived with like this big sticker on it, basically like that said used. And I was like, Oh, this just looks terrible like i don't want to have these displayed <laughs> like i'm like i'm like ah i couldn't spring to spend you know on a brand new hardback uh, that i was never gonna actually read but anyway 
I like what you got going on there. That's funny. You just brought up a business idea. You could totally create some form of like a resume to let people know what audiobooks you've listened to. It's like a we need a, a physical like representation of audiobooks that can be in your background. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's like <laughs> there should be. <laughs> it's like can can we have like a fifth choice on Amazon when you go to purchase? It's like buy the paperback, buy the hardback, buy the Kindle. By the you know by the uh, you know the audible version and then or just buy a box that has it printed <laughs> on it so that you can put it on yourself make people think you read it. It's true. It was, so I'll admit I probably read every book that I ever put on the shelf until about a little over the halfway point, and then my addiction curve outpaced my capacity to read, and I I continued to buy books while not being able to keep up with my rate of purchase. And some of this came by the way of like all the stuff I was doing in my businesses and becoming a dad and all the fun stuff that happens as, as you get older. So now I have to like go revisit these. And there's like this element of shame where I'm like, this book has been on my shelf for a year and a half and I haven't read the cover, you know? So, um, it's, uh, I think I think uh, something that I and I haven't I don't have a formal diagnosis, so I don't want to like say this because it might offend somebody who actually is dyslexic. But I I have a, f a fairly like I'm fairly confident that I have some like visual reading obstacle because I, I go back as far as I can to when I was very young, and reading was always such a pain for me. Like I I didn't read my first book cover to cover like every word until I had graduated college. I got through every other book assignment, literature, you know, history by skimming, by reading Cliff's notes, by reading all kinds of like just faking my way through it because it was so painful to me. I would have this like, you know, read something in elementary school or high school for like, you know, your assignment. I would get two pages in. It would take me 10 minutes to read two pages and I'd fall asleep. Like I just could not focus. I remember I had this story that I tell where second grade, I moved schools and I was sitting at the new table with like Todd Cooley, Jennifer Johnson, and one other person. I don't remember the other person, but I remember these two people. And it was like read silent reading time. And I had the book and I opened my book and I just was like pretending to read, you know, because I just was like, this, this isn't working for me. I don't, I can't stay focused. And I would, I flipped through some pages and I put it down and Jennifer Johnson turns to me. She's like, you were faking. Nobody can read that fast. And I was like, oh shit, I just got found out. I need to slow down my fake reading. Like I didn't do it right. You know, like I was, <laughs> I thought I was like, I'd been exposed. And so, yeah, that's been like my life. So when Audible kind of, you know, I, I love books on tape when we were like, doing family road trips as a, uh, as a kid, you know, we have cassettes, we'd listen to whatever. It was like interesting to me. Audible comes out. I'm like, Oh, I can finally focus and pay attention. Like I can listen to podcasts. I can listen to audibles. It's like, ask me to read it. It's like painful. Like I have two hardback books on my nightstand and like, it's my tool to fall asleep if I need to, like if I need some way to wind down, I read five pages of a book and I'm out and it takes me however long. It's, I mean, to your point, I think what you just highlighted is the importance of like being genuinely honest with yourself as what is your best learning vehicle? Oh, yeah. You know, interestingly, for me, I do well with reading during certain phases of my life. Like if I'm like, overloaded mentally with other projects, it's really difficult for me to pay attention for long periods of time. But audiobooks drive me nuts. It, it reminds me of being read to by like a monotone teacher. Oh, really? And I become just immediately distracted. But podcasts, things that are conversational, I do very well with. So it's just, yeah, I, I have had similar feelings in that, like, there are certain forms of media or ways of, you know, gathering information that I just fare better with than others. <laughs> I'll just say one more thing about this before we move on to more interesting, more interesting topics. Yeah. <laughs> well, reading to my children, you know, it's like, this has been like reading children's stories has been like <laughs> sort of me, like relearning to read, like, and read out loud is like never something I love to do. And it's just so interesting. Like I'll read these stories to my kids and like, I'm, me I'm messing words up in the story. And my daughter is now seven or she's turning seven really soon. And she like, reads very well now <laughs> she catches me on like she's like dad that's not what it said i'm like 
I know, babe. (laughs) (laughs) You got me. (laughs) That's so funny. Uh, I'm uh, getting corrected by the six-year-old. My my nine-month-old isn't old enough to correct me yet, but I am. I I find myself stumbling in the same way that you do. Um, Mm. So I can I can appreciate that. Uh, So we we talked a little over a year ago. I feel like that's that's somewhere in about the timeline. Um, What is new in the life of Marcus (laughs) Philly? Your timeline is all out of whack. If you have a nine-month-old, you have no concept (laughs) of where you are in the in the space-time continuum. What's new? Well, yeah, what's new for in my world? We've got ourselves, uh, you know, a a five and a close to seven year old, and uh, they're both in grade school. So that's taken up a huge, huge chunk of our our life. Uh, Within the last year, gosh, yeah. So within the last year, I did like a very deep dive exploration into kind of my roots of like just more traditional bodybuilding style lifting. I had an injury around this time last year it, to my shoulder, which, which basically came, you know, on the heels of me basically trying to like think I'm superhuman Superman again and like go back to like training like a absolute savage for a few months and just overdoing it. But it was a really interesting year where I basically cut out all high intensity mixed modal training, high intensity cardio, none of it. I walked and I did bodybuilding workouts. And I also made a dramatic change to my nutrition. So all of those things taught me some really valuable lessons like about that world of training, what people are interested in, this kind of resurgence of bodybuilding is now this like cool thing, right? Thanks to like, you know, the likes of Chris Bumstead and some other competitors and social media, you know, as somebody who built functional bodybuilding in my business on the heels of really this this like CrossFit movement, you know, CrossFit is not in its glory days anymore. You know, bodybuilding uh, has sort of reclaimed some of that, like, you know, mass appeal. And that's sort of, again, my, like my, my origins in resistance training and, and being in the gym, you know, along with athletics, but I was like, okay, well, I want to get back to some of this too. And, you know, we are functional bodybuilding. We've had bodybuilding, in our name and in our programs for quite some time, what does it look like to take that more to the extreme? So like functional bodybuilding, as I have seen it is like this blend of CrossFit and bodybuilding. How do we like blend those two? And I could do a full base CrossFit program with a sprinkle of bodybuilding and call it FBB, or I could do a very big bodybuilding emphasis with a sprinkle of, you know, functional training and call it FBB. And I've kind of been in the middle, you know, like early days of FBB, I was kind of slanted towards performance and CrossFit. And then now I'm kind of skewing more towards the bodybuilding world. So I was like, let's take it all the way to the end of the spectrum as far as I see it going. And not like, you know, I haven't signed up to compete in a show and do like a traditional bodybuilding program, which I considered or I've considered, but it was just like, this has been a, it was a massive learning year for me and happy to talk about any of it or all of it or none of it. (laughs) But, and then, and I should say also that the nutritional component of this was also quite profound in that I, in the last two years, I went through a very big phase of doing animal-based eating, got some blood work done, made me rethink my some of my choices, and then changed my dietary protocols. And a year of doing that really taught me a, a ton about, you know, myself, but also kind of what what might matter, what's probably the most important thing for most individuals to be thinking about. Yeah, there's so much that I would love to unpack there. So the, the first thing is, I wasn't aware that the, the way that you actually aggravated your shoulder was by trying to kind of like dip your toes back into the, you know, fast paced, multiple modality, high intensity type exercise. You know, something I think that's really important for people to see and recognize is that even in the midst of being coached or being somebody that is highly well versed in this space, injuries to a certain degree can be kind of part and parcel of living an active life. And I guess my question to you is like, what advice would you give to people as to keep a pulse on what is too much, right? So like things are going to happen, right? You're Marcus Philly, you work out all the time, you're, you're very well versed in this stuff. But injuries still pop up in your life as they do for most coaches or better yet for all coaches. How can the average person have a, a good sense 
on what what is what is serving them versus what is not when is too many injuries too many injuries it really comes i think back to like what is your goal and what are you trying to achieve right so if you're trying to win the crossfit games then I would say there's almost no amount of injuries that's too much. And it's like over the top. It's like you, you essentially are signing up to, you know, whatever happens, happens, you know, if he dies, he dies kind of thing. Like I'm going to just go and run through, you know, walls and windows and glass and fire to try and win points. And I think that how deep your commitment is to your goal allows you to accept a certain amount of injuries and setbacks. If you're really not committed to a goal or you don't see the process that you're going through to achieve that goal as like, this is the only way, this is how I have to do it. Then you run into an injury, you run into an obstacle and you're gonna be like, that's not worth it. <laughs> I'm not doing that anymore. Have you ever heard of the, um, like the story behind what happened with the eighties and nineties Bulgarian weightlifting teams? I don't know if I have. Yeah, sorry. I should have been a lot more specific than that. But basically, so I know you're familiar to some degree with uh, with like Bulgarian style training, which is like maximal effort, drop sets, multiple sessions a day. And obviously they were on all sorts of stuff back then as, as everyone was in the weightlifting community. But essentially what would happen was their program was so difficult that it would just naturally select for the athletes that were freaks because everyone else would get hurt. So you have like 80% of lifters banged up or hurt. Many of them were asked to lift anyway, but it just, it solved the problem for like, well, who's going to be able to tolerate this style of lifting. And when they won, right, everyone, they, they went on and destroyed everybody, but they just left this, like this pile of corpses behind them of people that were just so incredibly banged up. So it just, when you brought that up, it's funny that you say that and like talk about the eighties and nineties. And I'm like, well, that is essentially what CrossFit was in the first decade of competitive CrossFit was just carnage. It was who were the most resilient people. We were all trying to do everything. You know, it was like, I mean, you look at Rich Froning's like approach, his like training methods early on. Uh, This was the champion of CrossFit for basically a decade. He has 10 titles from individual to team competition. Guy's a legend. But his early years of training were not, I mean, he's much more thoughtful now and knows a lot more, but like the early years, it was just like, I do everything. I do, like I train all day. There's all kinds of different programs that were overlapping with each other. Like he got a, he got a few small injuries, but he was just very resilient, had great genetics, had the right body, you know, shape, sizes, limb lengths to be able to be successful. And he rose to the top, but 99 out of a hundred people who would follow what Rich was doing. And there were plenty of his friends and other competitors that tried just blow up and they just, they were out. So, you know, it's, I seen it firsthand. I was in that. And I was somebody when I was competing for CrossFit and I cared a lot, I got some significant injuries and several times I almost quit. I mean, there's a very good story where it was like, look, I'm, I'm on the cusp of going to compete at the regional competition in one of my breakout seasons as an individual competitor. I've got a shot at doing something very good and maybe going to the CrossFit Games, but my back is in so much pain every day that I wrote to my coach and I said, I, I'm done. I quit. I'd like to focus on next year. I need to heal up. This is too much. And, you know, through a series of conversations, I got kind of like talked off the ledge and I went on to compete and qualify and compete at my first CrossFit Games. But it was so bad that it overcame, like the pain was overcoming my deep commitment to a particular goal. So back to your original questions, like when is it too much? Well, it's going to have something to do with like your resolve to your, you know, goals. Um, But also I think it's like, when somebody, I, the other thing that came up for me is, you know, there's injuries that happen that are, are a result of bad training practices and pushing it too hard. And then there's injuries that come as a result of not taking care of yourself outside of the gym. And that is a hard one to like really differentiate for people. It's like I hurt myself just like picking up my kid's toy and they think, oh, well, that just happened randomly. But the reality was that they've been pushing it so hard in the gym that they put themselves in like a really vulnerable spot 
by not being able to recover that they sustain this injury, you know, doing kind of like an everyday task or chore. Whereas somebody who's like, they tweak their ankle or they, you know, hurt their back doing a deadlift in the gym. But the program was like very thoughtful and it was well laid out and, you know, they weren't doing too much. It wasn't some crazy heavy thing. And the reason they hurt their back doing the deadlift is that they have been like staying up, you know, super late watching their Netflix show that they're binging and they drink a bunch of alcohol the night before and they come into the gym and they're like, oh man, that deadlift is like, you know, I'll never deadlift again. It's like, well, maybe if you had just like slept a bit more and you had been cognizant of the fact that like you drank a bunch last night more than you normally do and you slept terrible the night before you deadlifted, like that's what made you vulnerable. It wasn't the program itself. How does somebody determine whether it's like their training or being in an athletic environment that like comes with some injuries like, you know, oh, that that's what did it or if it's like what 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 you're doing outside, um, it's hard to differentiate for people. Yeah, you know, one thing that uh, that makes me think about is like when CrossFit came into the space, they were really like one of the first pioneers of this functional fitness. And I know there were people that were before them, but they they revolutionized this and and globalized it faster than anyone had done it before. And I feel like something I don't know that I want to consider it a lie, but a point of confusion for that I, I, I I'm hoping will start to dissolve is this notion that something like a back squat is more functional than a leg press. Because in my estimation, it depends, right? So if I have somebody that comes in and they have, uh, they're they're imbalanced in their hips, they're missing dorsiflexion in their ankles, uh, they have limited range of motion in in their, their quadriceps, and a whole slew of different limitations, it's like the leg press may actually be more functional for this individual at this given time And then also, you know, do we look at functional as it relates to like our goals that we have for next month or the month after? Or do we look at it zoomed out from like a lifespan or health span perspective? So I wanted to get your your input on that. Like, what is your perspective and view of functional, especially since it's baked into the functional bodybuilding name? How do we define that? And how do we aim towards it? Oh, man, I'm so glad you asked this question. And I'll start by saying that I exclusively use a Smith machine for back squatting lately. And I use a leg press. Those are my two lower body, double leg knee flexion exercises that I go back and forth between. I rarely will front squat with a barbell. I rarely will do a barbell back squat. That's not a Smith machine. That doesn't allow me stability and to to adjust my position. I'm very much aligned with the idea that the implement and the tool that you're using doesn't define the functionality of an exercise and that really when it comes to like what is functional well probably the most functional thing that we can help people achieve is an increase in muscle mass muscle like across the board is functional you know i think an important definition and distinction is that muscles when they're you grow muscle like so muscle hypertrophy and then you know increase in strength of a muscle muscle belly and muscle tissue they only contract one way and they can move your limbs the way that they're you know how they insert and originate and that will determine how much useful applicable force you can have in everyday life if that's a definition of function there have been studies and there's one that i think it was reviewed by uh, Menno Henselman like this year that I saw on his page, but it essentially said they did this study where it was like, let's look at people that use machines versus people that use free weights and let's put them through. I think it was like a 12 week training protocol. And then we're going to measure, we're going to have these metrics of function. So it's basically like balance, coordination, explosivity, like, I don't know, like how, what they're, jumping ability was and essentially they saw that like there was no difference that so long as these people added strength and muscle didn't matter the implement so long as they weren't specifically training for the plyometrics or the coordination pieces but they were just doing back squat versus leg press that at the end of this 12-week period of trained individuals 
and maybe it was like some moderately trained individuals, there was really no difference that really muscle and building strength was the functional characteristic that translated to all of these other things. Now, the other thing I think about, so instead, like, well, how do how do I think about functionality? I think about functionality as looking at, you know, the human body and the architecture, and what joints how joints are supposed to what the physiological potential range of a joint is, and how well are we taking advantage of like full physiological capability? You know, our hips and our knees and our ankles were designed to, you know, let's say flex and extend this much. How often are we taking our joints through that range of motion? You know, how are, how much are we thinking about the balanced development of musculature in and around every joint of the body? So, you know, building muscle if you had if you had the ability to just build really big biceps with a with a completely atrophied tricep i haven't seen that but like maybe there's one <laughs> example of like a, of a of a arm wrestler who's done that somehow but i would i would call that like a misfire in terms of building functional strength and functional capacity it's like overdeveloped you know one side of your body, the arm wrestler, like that's very functional for them. And that's, the, they're doing that very purposefully fine. Or if you're in a sport like Olympic weightlifting, where you really don't want to build a very big chest, like having a, a strong bench press makes no sense because that's going to limit your turnover in the snatch. It's going to be a flexibility issue. It doesn't really apply. Then, okay, that makes sense. But if we're looking at like functional jet GPP strength, like having a developed chest needs to be combined with a developed back, you know, having equal and opposite, you know, strength potential on all sides of your joint, and the ability to take a joint through a full range of motion, those are really functional characteristics, you know, giving somebody the opportunity to move in the, you know, frontal plane, the sagittal plane and the transverse plane, you know, under load, or at least to develop coordination those that to me is functional if you never did anything in the transverse plane or you did all of your exercises in the sagittal plane you could build a lot of strength you could build a lot of muscle you could be super strong and healthy but it would leave something on the table in terms of how in my definition of, of function so it's for lack of a better term it's like how do we build balanced strength through full range of motion around the entire body with the capabilities of moving you know, pretty much in any way we want to. There's, you know, I see Outlive on your shelf back there. And I don't know if you have the uh, the Ready State book that, 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 that they just put out this year, but there's there's some good tests and there's some like good ways of looking at like how, how good is your coordination? How good is your balance? I mean, Peter Tia talks about these as like characteristics. How good is your absolute strength, your grip strength? It's like, well, I think a functional bodybuilding program should be able to help support any and all of these things. And, you know, what are the biggest levers that we want to pull? Just building muscle and getting people super strong through a full range of motion. That's number one. And you can do that on a leg press just like you can do it on a back squat. And you can also screw it up on both. I see people who leg press with terrible form. You know, they just don't use a full range of motion. And... The same thing goes for a back squat, but I've seen people mess up quote unquote functional exercises, you know, more so than they mess up machine based exercises because the machine has a picture and they know exactly how to do it because they just follow the range that's there. What I love about what you just said is it places the functionality determination on the result and not the tools to get to that said result. So rather than focus on, well, which of these exercises is more functional in this given moment, it's, well, whatever one is going to get you to a place of being balanced, stable, strong, right, on both sides, not just giant biceps and small triceps. You know, and I, I'm going to go out on a limb and, and make a little bit of a hypothesis. I think there's an argument that could be made that for the average person, machines are actually a better way to grow muscle because it's easier to go to mechanical failure because there's fewer limiters associated with working on a machine that has a very specific function and focus and remove some of these elements that are necessary for barbell and dumbbell and free weights like stability like balance and while those things are good and great and why they're you know the priority in strength based gyms is because 
all strength-based sports require those those implements as part of the testing or performance-based uh, you know, end result that people are looking for. If you're just talking about building muscle, machines can be an amazing supplement to accomplishing that. I couldn't agree more. You know, and as I was just thinking about it, like if I were going to, yeah, building my, uh, my dream gym, which I more or less have, but it's like, if I was going to start from like an empty canvas, it'd be like, I'd have a lot of machines. I'd have a lot of dumbbells and I might not have very many barbells at all. You know, like I would, I would keep the tools for going, you know, high intensity to, to failure to mechanical failure, to form failure. Uh, I would perform the vast majority of those on machines. And then I would have dumbbells as my sort of uh, free weight component because going to failure with, with dumbbells is, in my opinion, a bit safer, especially on like on pressing, possibly pulling or squatting or hinging um, simply because without, you know, uh, the stability of a barbell between two hands, you know, you can't compensate and sort of push past, you know, whatever, whichever side has the, <laughs> the mechanical imbalance, you know, with a bench press or with a strict press, I will keep pressing through when my right shoulder, which is my weaker shoulder fails because I can, whereas with a dumbbell, I go until my right arm just can't extend up anymore. And it's like, okay, the set's over. Like there's, you're not getting any help from your left arm on this one because you got two different implements in your hand. So anyway, yeah, that's and for just, the audience, like another way to think about this is RPE or relative perceived exertion as it relates to specific movements and the risk to reward profile of going to maximum failure. So for example, if you're doing a back squat, the risk to reward of going to an RPE 10 versus an RPE 8, the, the reward isn't much greater, but the risk is much higher. Whereas if you're doing this on something like a leg press or a hack squat, it's easier to go to an RPE 9 or RPE 10 without also significantly increasing the risk associated with that movement. And this is often why in a good solid strength based program that is focused on mostly barbells, you see a lot of sub maximal repetition, right? You see a lot of lower RPE six, RPE seven, RPE eight in comparison to the 3% or 5% of the program that is focused on actually peaking and working at maximal output. Great. Great explanation. I mean, it's sort of been one of the things that I've learned in the last year that I've talked a lot about with my customers and my 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 athletes and my, you know my clients is the mission of functional bodybuilding is to provide you with enough daily opportunities to take yourself to a, a high high level of effort. Basically, fail. Like I want you to be able to come in and have two to three opportunities within your training session that you feel confident and safe to push yourself maximally because that is where you're going to see vast majority of all of the results that you're ever going to get in the gym. And the truth is that most people, general population trainees don't feel safe to do that. It takes a long time for them to get there and they may never get there. You know, I work with, I try like, I think of my mom as an example. It's like, I desperately want her to feel safe and confident to push close to failure. But, you know, once you get past 50 and 60, like the fear of what could go wrong and, you know, how would this limit me in my life? It goes up almost exponentially to the point where you're not taking those risks, calculated risks to go closer to failure where that, which is what's going to help her maintain her muscle mass and strength as she ages. If she's just like, I'm just going to stick to the 15 pound dumbbell and, you know, do, do a bunch of reps. It's better than nothing for sure, but it's certainly not the way to ward off, you know, sarcopenia and just like age related muscle and strength loss. So, and then same thing goes for like, you know, people, like I want people even who are not in the aging population to feel safe and confident to do that. And machines can be very it can be great for that. And there's some exercises that just suck for that. It's like, I don't prescribe, you know, RDLs or stiff legged deadlifts to a 10 out of 10 RPE. It's the, the risk reward just doesn't work for most people. I take it there sometimes, but even that is like, 
you know, one wrong position and my low back is sore for a week, which is then affecting the rest of my training, which is not worth it. So yeah, picking and choosing those exercises, knowing what movements really work well for people to push themselves hard and then giving them exposure to lots of other exercises at lower, you know, rate of perceived exertion is great to keep them getting variety, you know, improving their their kind of like movement fluency. We prescribe a lot. And so in the functional bodybuilding kind of like uh, nomenclature, we have like strength intensity exercises and we have strength balance exercises. And the way I kind of talk about it is like strength balance exercises are ones where you almost have like a whole different RPE scale that you're working on. Like the, the goal is not to go to failure. The goal is not to like max out. The goal is to basically take this opportunity to do weighted movement exploration, like perform Cossack squats as deep as you can, you know, work on your hip positions, work on your flexibility, your mobility, working in the, you know, frontal plane. I, I don't know, just trying new things. Yeah, just playing and and putting your body in positions that it isn't, in, you know, going to be forced into throughout your daily living, but it doesn't remove the importance of being able to access them. So I want to take a pivot. And I'm going to start with a little bit of a tough question, because it's one that I've been pondering uh, since I saw the post yesterday. So Jordan Syatt put out a post yesterday that said something to the effect of many of the coaches that are taking that have been taking dogmatic approaches to nutrition are actually just battling their own experiences with disordered eating. I found this, it, it got the wheels turning with me because I do think there's been much talk by a lot of people in the fitness space of leaving certain things in the past in 2023. And I think we're, we're at this place where the basics just don't look sexy online, but avoidance and, you know, uh, limitation and like going to the extreme in one camp or another does. How do we get to a place in 2024 and moving forward where we can make the basics attractive? for the people that are coming to us for advice? Well, I think it comes with people like coaches like Jordan and I think a growing number of coaches that are showing up on social media to say, look, I'm just doing the basics over and over again and it's working really well. And they're using humor. They're using different strategies to make the basics and the simple stuff entertaining. And to like essentially shine a spotlight on these dogmatic, you know, coaches approaches as being like kind of ridiculous. And, you know, like if you really like look at the irony of just how crazy this very dogmatic removal approach to dieting is like, I wouldn't say that's making the basics look sexy, but it's making anything but the basics look kind of ridiculous. And it's starting to make the basics seem more appealing. You know, it's funny that you say it like that because one of like the early functional bodybuilding, you know, taglines I, I used to post about was like simple is sexy, like doing snatches and muscle ups and walking on your hands like is sexy, but so is like doing like a kneeling landmine press and like, a, you know, a banded clamshell, like these are sexy movements. And I was like, how do I just make the simplest movements, you know, look sexy on online so that people can start to get excited about doing the stuff that that's more aligned with their skill strength and, you know, training, training age. So I know it takes people who have like an audience who people look up to. I thought it was my job for a while to like make simple stuff look sexy. It's like, I still think that. And I'm very much like doing my best to, you know, align to this, the most simple nutritional and training approaches, because I think that has a lot of value for the the end consumer. It's hard to sell. It's hard to like, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to like make a big profit off of uh, eat a gram per pound of, you know, of body weight and protein each day, you know, eat 35 grams of fiber or more each day, you know, drink a lot of water, go to bed and wake up at the same time and uh, resistance train full body three days a week and walk 10,000 steps. Like I wish I could trademark all of that or, you know, get some IP there, but that is the recipe that that will make 95% of people reach all their goals. And there's not nothing really unique or proprietary there to sell. Now you've been, you know, pretty open and vulnerable about 
the different things that you've tried in your nutrition. And I think that for the people that do have spent the time to build the foundation of like, this is my, I think of like in, in precision nutrition, they have like a level one where it's like, you've built the base of checking the boxes of sleep steps, hydration, you know, so on and so forth, all the basics that we, you know, we would refer to as it relates to nutrition. And my question is, you know, for someone like yourself or myself or other fitness coaches, we've time to time will try new things as it almost like a form of experimentation on ourselves to see, well, how would I do if I were to try fasting? Like, how would I do if I were to try plant-based? When do those journeys, how do we, how do we decipher them from being benign versus cancerous in, uh, as it relates to like our relationship with food? Because based on Jordan's comment, what he's saying is that some of these people that are taking these things to an extreme on one side or the other are really just battling their own disordered eating. And I'm sure in some cases that is the case. But in others, there's this like genuinely honest uh, intrigue of like experimenting on ourselves. So how, how do you go about kind of drawing that line with yourself or with your clients? Well, just to Jordan's point, it's like he might have said that and I don't I don't know the con the full context and the what the full quote was if he was saying that the undertone of okay all of these people are battling their own disordered eating and dot 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 that is bad I would take issue with that because most people that are out there trying to solve that that are solving big problems that then impact huge numbers of people are doing it because they have their own demons that they're trying to figure out and solve the person who is i don't know i don't know if this is a good example but got jason phillips who i'm not sure if you're familiar with he runs a company called nutrition coaching institute they've you know certified thousands maybe at this point of of coaches it's a successful business and people are then going out and doing really good work in the world you know his origin story is that as a teenager he was anorexic and he basically spent probably the rest of his life trying to solve for this issue and where did it lead him to developing a nutrition coaching institute where he teaches really sound principles to people like you know again i don't know the full story of it but it's like okay what's wrong with that like and he probably went through some really dogmatic years where he was a staunch faster and he was a staunch this person and he did and then he arrives at something that's very let's say less biased and you know more uh about helping and moving the needle forward so in that way, I don't think it's wrong. I mean, I think that there are definitely examples of, you know, people who are battling their own eating disorders or dis you know, disordered eating or, you know, history that then get on board with like a very dogmatic view of, you know, nutrition and in the process of like sharing that or pumping that message out to the world, you know, make a lot of people feel terrible about themselves. And yeah, that's problematic. But I'm somebody who I, I've struggled with disordered eating in my life. I've been pretty open and honest about that. Like, you know, I went through some tough times in college. I certainly have carried with me for most of my life, like, you know, a connection to value, my worth, my body, what I look like. And it's made me, I've been aware of it and I've talked about it, but it has, it has been probably important contributing factor to me exploring different things in the world of nutrition and having like curiosities of like, okay, I'm curious about this style of eating one, because it's interesting. It's, there seems to be some merit to it. But I'm also curious what that might do for myself. Like, how would this impact my relationship to food? You know, the ease of eating and maintaining a healthy body and a healthy look and a healthy image and great performance. Like, I think we're all searching for, you know, some method of of navigating life through food and movement that is easy, enjoyable and gives me everything I want. Like. Who's not looking for that? So I'm not sure that that really like answers the question fully, but you know, there's, it, it's a complicated, it's a complicated topic and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad to be out there exploring and trying things. And that was sort of my instance with going down the rabbit hole of animal-based eating for a period of about six months. And what I, I was deeply curious about, like, okay, I want to explore what this feels like and what this does for me. And then what can I learn from it? And then maybe share with others. And I'm, I try and be as careful as I can 
to not, you know, to take my time with a method or with a process to learn, okay, well, this is what it's doing for me. And then how is this impacting others before I like jump on the bandwagon and I tell everybody, you know, they're doing it right or wrong. And I think that was one of the examples in my life where like, I probably pushed a little too hard on sharing my curiosities and interests about animal-based eating to the point where I think it made some people feel uncomfortable, like, oh, Marcus is not, he thinks I'm a bad person because I eat vegetables kind of thing. What were your experiences on that diet? My experiences were, you know, getting to like explore the consumption of organ meats for the, for the first time in my life, really, like, you know, eating organ meats. I got to, I think generally I felt pretty good. There was no like dramatic noticings about my body or my body composition or my performance. I think there were a couple confounding variables in that I sort of adopted a relatively low carb approach along the way. And I was eating a very high fat diet, which I think I came to learn is not like my optimal macronutrient uh, profile doesn't feel best for me in terms of performance and just how I like to train and, you know, live my life. I really got into, you know, I brought, I kind of had spent a few years like making dairy a very small part of my diet and almost minimal to nothing. But with animal-based eating, I brought back a lot of dairy into my life, which, you know, fermented dairies and raw, raw milk products, which I love and I really enjoy. But I also found that like those were foods that I could consume in pretty large quantities. Like people talk about animal-based eating. It's like, oh, I started animal-based and I lost a bunch of weight. For me, those food groups and eating that way was not high satiety for me. I could eat a lot of food and I could put on weight relatively easily uh, through that approach. I also was eating a very high saturated fat diet with all the dairy that I was having. And um, I ended up having, you know, finding out that I don't respond well to high saturated fat diets like my ApoB and LDL numbers <laughs> skyrocketed. So that made me take pause. And that was what really kind of got me to think, okay, I need to consider changing some things. But somebody who's had historically, I've had some gut health issues. Um, I found that, you know, eating animal based really helped resolve a lot of that. So I, my, my gut health was was really in check. Yeah, those were some of my noticings that happened during that time. And it was a really great experience and great experiment. And I, I really loved the values behind like whole unprocessed foods, getting more fermented foods into your diet, you know, fermented dairy as a great thing to be adding. I like the idea of including organ meats into the diet, even if it's just a small amount, just for the nutrient value that can come in there eating liver, for example, eating heart, just people getting, you know, higher quality foods too. that being something that's really, you know, a big talking point within the animal based community. Thank you for that recap. Um, I, I think the audience will definitely take something out of that. It was interesting hearing about your, your experiences, because uh, you did that for what, six months? Yeah, I mean, it was like, it was probably all in probably six to eight months, but there was like the last four, I was like, I remember getting slowly kind of getting into it. And then I was like, okay, I'm not eating a vegetable, you know, for the next, for, for ongoing, you know, it was like no vegetables for probably four months. It was just fruit, honey, dairy, and then meat. Now, many of our uh, audience or much of our audience, uh, and myself included, uh, are new parents, right? Or have little ones. Um, and you recently on the functional bodybuilding podcast did an episode on encouraging kids to move and how to do that. So I guess my first question to you is, how do we, since we were just talking about nutrition, how do we structure nutrition in our children's lives to help them create a positive relationship with food? This one's difficult for me. I, I do not have this figured out. I think what we're, what we have tried to lean on is our goal, me and my wife, is to make sure that our children have like a, that there's, there's low stakes and low pressure around food. There's going to be plenty of times in their life where they're going to feel, you know, some outside influence or pressure to eat a particular way or avoid certain things because it's not healthy or could make them fat or whatever. To us, you know, we essentially want them to feel like they have some autonomy to choose what they want and eat what they want and not eat what they don't want. You know, we, we, we don't have any rules around you got to finish your plate 
or you can have dessert after dinner. If once you finish your dinner, we don't use treats and sweets as rewards. Hey, can we have some jello? Sure. Jello's on the plate, pasta's next to it. You know, there's a, a fruit next to that. And then there's some, you know, protein next to that. Eat what you want. Like they're eating the jello and then they're having an artichoke and then they're eating a piece of bacon. You know, it's like all kind of on the table and on the plate at the same time. So that's the theory is that we don't want them to feel like these are like the forbidden foods or these are like the the special foods and these are like the, you know, healthy foods. And they, they've arrived at some of this stuff on their own. There is a limit to like how much sugar will allow them to have. It's not like eat as much as you'd like. It's like, hey, I want to, can I have another this? And we're like, no, that's all we're having for tonight. And, but outside of that, that's kind of it. And what, unfortunately, what we've learned is that like, if you're going to have kids that go to school and they're in public school and you don't have the ability to control what they're, you know, eating, like you might want to, but it's just not, not going to happen. And at this stage, like we send lunches with them to school, but their school provided lunch and snack. And if they don't touch anything that's in our lunchbox, but they eat everything at school, like we're not going to be able to control that. Yeah. And the fear obviously becomes if you heavily restrict them at home, they're just going to seek it out more when they're not at home. You know, so I I think part of your method, and you can correct me if I'm off on this, but it seems like you're just focused on the addition piece, like on just making sure that you're constantly introducing them to foods that you would you want them to be introduced to, but you're also not removing other foods from their availability. Yeah, yeah. And we're at a tough, we're at a tough stage right now where we've got children that have a very narrow, you know, uh, diet, like they, they, there's not a lot of variety in what they eat. They're not open to exploring foods outside of their narrow window of what they like to eat. And they don't, I mean, and I don't know if this is like challenging or this is just kind of where they're at in their development, but it's like, they don't eat meals as much as they just snack all day, which then becomes uh, dif- difficult just from like a, a lifestyle perspective. It's like, we want to sit down and have lunch. Like they don't want to do that. You know, like they, we want to sit down and have dinner as a family. They want to take a couple bites and they want to run around and play. And then they're like, I'm not hungry. And then two hours later, you know, it's time for, it's time for bed. It's like, Hey, let's go brush teeth. They're like, I'm hungry. I want to eat. <laughs> you know, so it's, it, and I know that will change, but my, my big thing with my wife, you know, and what I'm seeing going forward is like, I want to introduce them to some new things. And, uh, I don't know when and where that's going to start to happen. I know that these are phases that kids go through and they'll, they'll grow out of it. But for now it's like, you know, they're developing their bodies and their brains and I love them to have, you know, more nutrients and I'm finding ways, we're finding ways to kind of get it in there and do the best that we can. But you know, I still think it's really important that they don't come out of these years feeling like there's restriction, that there's things that are off limits, that they feel like they they have any feeling of like shame around eating something, which I have to be more careful of than my wife because I I will send out these subtle signals of like, God, like, you know, which I, I don't do intentionally, but like I have a thing around food myself that I need to make sure is like, I'm not projecting that onto them. Oh, that's got to be such a tough, like tightrope to walk. Because oh, it it's is. like you're, you've got your own level of emotional regulation going on. And then you're like, I can't, I can't be expressive yeah. in this way around my kids. Yeah, that's got to be tough. Right. It's like I'm seeing like 10 steps down the road of like, oh, man, these choices are not they're not setting them up for the best thing. And it's like that's because that's my bias is like somebody who's just deeply consumed and thinking about like nutrition and, and health all the time. Whereas my wife sees it in like, you know, the relationships and the interactions that they're having and like the social, emotional connections that they have, like that's her profession, that's her career. And so she sees like a misfire in how they were interacting with a friend or interacting with me. And then she stews on that for like, you know, days and days and days. Whereas I'm like maybe stewing on like, oh fuck, they haven't had like, they haven't had a bit of fiber in like, a week like how am I gonna get some you know like or like my daughter like I don't think she's had more than like six different foods in the last month like and she's constipated right now like fuck how's that's 
how am I going to help over help her overcome that? You know? And so when she asked for something, I'm like, no, we're not, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a challenge. So on the flip of this, as it relates to like movement with kids, you know, one of the things that I think about often is, you know, a common topic is like, are there people that genuinely hate exercise? And I, and I believe the answer is yes, comma, but they don't have to if they had the right childhood. And I think that much of this comes from our belief systems that we that are shaped when from when we are kids. And if you are introduced to exercise in a way where you do find it fun from the time that you're three years old and on, I, I feel like that's only going to set you up for success. And it doesn't mean you need to be the, the next, you know, uh, Matt Frazier, right, or go compete in, in, in any given sport. It just means that it fitness becomes a non-negotiable in your life movement becomes a non-negotiable in your life. So how do we provide environments that make movement conducive and fun for kids? Well, I mean, I think it starts with the parents setting an example, right? It's like, be a household that moves, that it's part of your, like the time, the family time that you have outside of school, because at school, like, there's a decent amount of movement that kids are going through. Uh, especially in like grades, like early elementary school, uh, middle school and, and high school, that's going to fade away. So it's like in this, you know, K through f- kindergarten through and even preschool, but kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth grade, they're moving a bit at the playground. They're running around, they're playing on the monkey bars, they're chasing each other. Like that starts to happen. Can you foster that kind of environment when you're with family? You know, like, continue to take trips to the park, continue to do things like on weekends that just get them out and moving, going for bike rides, uh, going on hikes. Uh, hey, we're going to go and do some movement today. Or at least they see us as like <clears throat> parents working out every Saturday. We have these workouts here at our, at our gym where we invite a bunch of parents, friends of the kids and they come and the kids all are here. There's like, you know, five different couples and we're all working out together downstairs and the kids watch a cartoon upstairs where we're at right now in the podcast studio. And then they're always like peering over and they're seeing like their parents and they're seeing their friends, like all these friends' parents working out. And usually for the last like 20 minutes, they're downstairs and they're swinging on the ropes and they're swinging on the rings and they're kind of like engaging because they see that that's the thing to do. So it's modeling that. Um, and then I'm, I I like the idea of like just getting kids into activities that are also movement based, right? Our girls are doing gymnastics right now. They're doing a dance class, which, you know, lots of movement in the dance class. We tried soccer for them this year. They played soccer, like, you know, organized sports are great. I think some are more movement based than others, you know, like, um, neither of them have expressed interest in, in like baseball or softball or t-ball or anything like that but you know some sports like that don't have as much movement involved as like a soccer or gymnastics or dance or you know maybe a martial art or like wrestling or grappling or jujitsu or something but for me it's like just sprinkling in or finding ways to keep movement there and like last night i picked them up from school and or you know, in the evening and we went to the playground afterwards and we played like hot lava monster. And I was like sprinting around, chasing them all over the playground. And, you know, that, I think that has like a, the parents being capable and able to participate in movement related things with their kids is big, you know, and if you're not taking care of yourself and you're exhausted and fatigued every evening and you don't want to go out for a walk with the kids or you don't want to take them to the park and the playground or because you just haven't, you don't have that energy, then that starts to set a pattern too, where they're like, oh yeah, when the day is done, you just sort of sit around and watch TV or you sit around and you don't do any activities. Like that's the responsibility of parents, I think, to foster the right sort of uh, environment. I love that message. Uh, well, Marcus, I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your insights. Um, I know I always find them incredibly helpful. And based on the audience's uh, reaction from last time I had you on, they did as well. So I'm sure they will this time also. Um, let, uh, remind everyone where they can learn more about you and what you do. Um, I mean, I'm on the various social media platforms at Marcus Philly. You can go and check me out um, there. But I would uh, encourage you to go to uh, 
functional-bodybuilding.com and uh, join my uh, newsletter because I send out weekly newsletters and range from a wide variety of different topics, but they're all designed and built around giving you information on, you know, training and nutrition uh, through the functional bodybuilding lens so you can live a healthier, happier, and more fulfilled life. Boom. And what, what's better than that? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Zero. Like, again, Marcus, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I appreciate being here. If you feel like the gym is one big, confusing, and intimidating playground, a personalized coach from Hardbat Athletics can work with you remotely to help match your goals to an actionable plan. You'll get workout videos and descriptions and have access to coaching calls to make adjustments when you need them. Let us take the guesswork out of your fitness and nutrition. Visit www.hardbatathletics.com to chat with a coach today.